It's just amazing, the love and compassion for the cause. And you'll find from these, you'll feel that from these speakers. And I don't know about you, but I think one of the biggest challenges of getting the word out for your organizations has to do with marketing. And when the, we met, uh, the board met earlier this year, we were talking about, well, what speakers do we want to have come? What topics do we want to um, present? And marketing is such a difficult topic because some people are old school, some people are young, and they know all about what's happening everywhere, and it gets confusing. And so we thought it would be very, very important for you to hear a little bit more about marketing in this day and time and all the interesting things, that options that are out there from the uh, new ways. So if you would um, welcome to the stage um, Vitae, and they're going to speak to us today, Kenny Newbill and Kassar Farrell. I'll take uh, the uh, stairs route, and you can take the uh, leg up route. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Kenny Nouvel. I'm the Director of Marketing and Research Application for the Vitae Foundation. And joining me today is Cassara Farrell. She's a digital marketing strategist, um, which basically means... That's just a fancy word for I do Google Ads. <laughs> <laughs> we like to keep people well-rounded so they can fit in as um, necessary. And um, just a little bit of housekeeping while we wait for the clicker up here. Several people asked about, um, about Stacy Cromer. She regrets that she can't make it this morning. She's feeling a little ill. So if you wouldn't mind keeping her in your prayers, I'm sure she'd greatly appreciate it. And also, if you uh, have any uh, you know, thoughts, I'm sure she'd appreciate uh, the reach out as well. Um, so when we were first um, approached about presenting today, um, a lot of things went through my head about what we could talk about and all of the depth that we could, we could plumb in the marketing world in 2019 and beyond. And then we were told we had 20 minutes and 10 minutes for questions. And I was like, all right, you're going to get the short, short version. Um, so what we'd like to do is we'd like to give you a little bit of a glimpse as marketing as we see it in the here and now. Talk about some of the things we're seeing, some of the struggles that um, we're seeing, not only um, you know, the pro-life movement, but even other, other movements and other um, industries seeing um, in 2019. And then talk a little bit about how we've been able to combat it and what we plan to do in the future. Um, so without further ado, I'll give it to uh, Kassara here to talk about uh, a path to success. Okay, I'm going to do this left-handed and this right-handed. Okay, I can do it. All right, so path to success. One of the reasons we wanted to talk about this is because, like you, we are also, or like many of you, we are also a nonprofit organization. And one of the things we run into... Oh, sorry, it's too far. Let me just... There we go. Okay, so one of the things we run into, and you probably recognize every single one of these, is how we have five million different goals, right? We don't just have one. We are fortunate enough to have many. Um, so we run into these things too. But one of the things we've noticed with working, um, especially directly with pregnancy care centers and working internally too, is jumping right into a car and traveling and just figuring out what you're gonna do isn't really what you do when you go plan a trip. You sit down, you look at Google Maps, you print it out, maybe you look at the stops you wanna take. It's the same thing with these goals. You need to know your goal and you need to know it specifically. You need to know how to measure each of these goals because what's gonna happen is once you're able to measure these goals and their success, you can look back at them when you need to do this again. And you can make little small tweaks to, okay, how did we raise that money? Well, how much money did we need to raise? Well, why did we raise that money? How did we measure that community awareness or that success with that? Once you're able to measure your, your brand or um, your goal, like I said, you're able to use it again. So when you understand what you want, and these are um, words straight from Kenny, so I'm not going to pretend like they're mine, but when you understand what you want, you need to figure out how to get it, and you need to know the channels you should throw your money, and in what order. I think that's the most important thing. So what the Vitae Foundation has seen in much of our research is this order right here. So website. So you think of website as your storefront. It is the window into what you are providing or the services that you have. Next, we want to see SEO be kind of the next forefront. It needs to come right alongside your website to push it out there. People have to know how to find you. And SEO is search engine optimization. For those who don't know, it's basically a fancy way for Google to put you on page one. <laughs> and everybody knows you want to be on page one because 
I don't think I've ever actually gone to page two. It's a dark place. Yeah. It's not a place you want to be. Um, but we all know that Google's a business, so guess what? They want your money. And if you give them money, you can actually get your ad seen no matter what. It does have the fancy little title of ad next to it, um, but there are ways um, to get it up there and to get it seen. So that's where AdWords come in. And then next, we actually look at social media. Social media is not what the Vitae Foundation would say you need to use to find clients or things like that, but it's a great way to get them to trust you. When I'm on Amazon, the first thing I do is I scroll all the way to the bottom and I read the reviews. What we see with clients now, especially who are looking for resources this serious, is they're gonna go look at your Facebook page or your Instagram and they're gonna see what you're about and see if that's what they wanna be about. So you wanna make sure you have a good presence, but don't try to um, use social media as a way to, to draw them in. Use it as a way to create your brand and your brand awareness. So one of the things that I'd like to talk about just briefly is um, a study we recently wrapped up. We called it our inbound research study, but basically what we did was for 12 months, we fully funded campaigns for seven centers across the United States. And um, we, we provided website creation, if necessary, management, um, SEO, Google search, Facebook and Instagram. We also did keyword blogging for the centers. There's um, actually one in the room today. Um, and what we discovered as we were executing this campaign, is a list of some very interesting uh, data concerning uh, the abortion-determined woman and how they're um, responding to the ads that we were placing using our right brain research. So what we saw, just some facts, just again off the cuff, Mondays and Thursdays were actually most popular for abortion services, or searches, excuse me. Um, and, and I guess it's important to point out that the seven centers were all the way across the country. They were pretty much spread evenly. Um, so East Coast, West Coast, Central, all over. And um, this was almost universal in these seven centers, although of course there are some outliers. Mondays were the most popular day for calls to centers. So this is important to know because of staffing purposes. Obviously, when you get a lot of calls, you want to make sure that you answer them if you're a PHC dealing with an abortion-determined patient because they're one step away from getting an abortion and talking to someone else. So it's important to know when you need to be fully staffed and ready to go. And in this research study, what we found was that Monday was the most popular day for that. So we also found out, interestingly enough, that it was less expensive to secure connections with centers in urban areas rather than rural areas. And you would think a couple different things, um, but, but our predominant theory was that there was going to be more competition in bigger, larger metropolitan areas. And that's true, but what we found was that actually using the right brain research and the messaging strategies that we employ, we were actually able to garner connections for PHCs on a cheaper basis than in rural areas, which we found kind of fascinating. Social media was the least effective for securing connections, and, and Casera touched on that briefly, and I would like to point out that obviously social media can help your organization um, uh, create um, potential clients. However, it's a long-term strategy rather than an immediate strategy. For the most part, what we've seen is that when a woman is looking for abortion, um, an abortion, she's not going to Facebook and looking for it. She's going to Google. She's going online. That's why it's so critical that you have a quality website. You have it made sure that it's 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 working well. It's got good SEO, and then also um, with AdWords, you know, that's also a critical a critical moment as well. Um, so basically, what we confirmed was our theory that social media was really a great branding tool. And centers with pregnancy center in the name saw fewer connections. Now, that's not saying that you need to take that out if you are a center with pregnancy center in your name. That's just what we saw. And that's what we do. We take a look at different things. We research them. We tell you what we find. Keyword blogs must remain neutral in order to um, appeal to abortion-determined women. So, uh, women, excuse me. So, basically what we found is if we wrote blogs that were anti-abortion, then we would obviously see a decline in clients who were abortion-determined or abortion-minded going to the center. Whereas if we wrote blogs that were very informational, very neutral, right, that attracted her because what she was looking for in that moment, whether she knew it or not, actively was information. That's what she wants. She wants that support, that information to make a choice, right? So that's what we saw with keyword blogs. Also, abortion doesn't take a holiday. 
There was just as many connections um, in the winter months around the holidays and in the summer months and in spring around spring break. There's a lot of people, when I entered into this movement two and a half years ago, who said, well, you know, there's the, the summer dip or the, the, you know, the winter rise. And, and while there are times where, you know, you see a rise and fall, what we found across 60 campaigns, AdWords campaigns specifically is what my background is in, so that's what I'll refer to. Across 60 campaigns across the country, what we found is that there was ebbs and flows at almost any given time. So it's very important that you're there when they need you to be there, not just when you think they will be there. So real quick, one of the things that we, we talk about a lot is what is the opposition doing? And it's very important to know your opposition. You know, uh, football teams will watch play tapes of other teams before they take the field, and we need to make sure that we know our opposition as well. But in 2019, and actually for a few years now, but I think we can solidly say that in 2019 it's reared its ugly head, that platforms are actually becoming our opponents. When we take a look at social media channels that are knocking conservative voices off, or even Google recently with the latest additions to their AdWords. Um, and we'll be talking a little bit more about that right now. So we've got a couple examples here, and some of these you may have heard of, but I thought they were really important to just kind of go over again, to kind of hone in on what Kenny just said, that we are seeing platforms kind of as the opponent in 2019. And it's probably only going to get worse or a little um, harder to infiltrate. Um, one of the things that happened was on Pinterest earlier this year, they banned live action. They actually put them, a whistleblower allegedly, um, said that they put them on a um, porn block site. Um, we all know that live action is not a pornographic site. <laughs> um, and they also put another conservative group, which they um, weren't naming, and, and so I couldn't find that information. But um, I mean, it just kind of goes to show you Pinterest is not something I would have thought, you know, when this all came out, I was like, no, no, you're wrong. You're not talking about Pinterest. You're talking about Facebook. You're talking about Instagram. No, Pinterest um, actually is, is, is out there too. It's not all Joanna Gaines and DIY. Um, Facebook, of course, we know is kind of what we look at as like the beast. Um, but actually what happened earlier this month I thought was really interesting was um, the Mark Zuckerberg, as we all know, the CEO of Facebook, met with Senator Josh Hawley, which is actually a Missouri state senator. Um, and he um, got them into a room and they were talking to him about what happened with Lila Rose in live action. They were also being centered, or censored as false news. And um, Mark Zuckerberg admitted that this was wrong and what had clearly happened was the bias um, that wasn't supposed to be there with the fact checkers that Facebook has in place to decide whether you are false news or not were activists for the other side. And so therefore they were censoring people that they believed they should be censoring. And unfortunately that was some pro-life groups. I think, Kenny, you have a couple more. Yes. Yeah, and obviously it, it, admitting the problem is the first step to solving it, but we don't see that being the case anytime soon. I mean, the fact of the matter is that these people seem to be okay with it. And for those of us that are wondering, well, when is the government going to step in and help? I don't know that the more regulation from the government level is going to be good for us. So maybe we should pray for another alternative to that. So Twitter, obviously, um, a, a, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Um, also, one of my favorite social media channels. Um, James O'Keefe of Project Veritas wasn't deleted or blocked, but he was locked out of his account. And that was actually in response to several things that this man has done, who I'm sure, again, you all are familiar with. Um, but interestingly enough, he's released several videos um, that contain remarks from Twitter engineers that talk about banning a way of talking. And I hate to break it to you, but the way of talking they want to ban is partly our way of talking, right? So they want to curb what is visible in the public sphere by changing what people are able to say on their platforms. Again, platforms are opponents in 2019. Now this isn't really a platform, but I thought this was very interesting. And one of the reasons that we've been a little hesitant, I'll admit it, to get into geotargeting or geofencing, and that is, um, in 2016, Rewire News ran a big old expose, at least that's what they thought it was. Anti-choice groups use smartphone surveillance to target abortion-minded women during clinic visits. It's a very nice title. 
I mean, if you print this thing out, it was like 25 pages long. It was insane. Um, and basically, what was going on was there was a marketing firm in Boston that was running um, geo-targeted campaigns. So in other words, when a woman would go into a Planned Parenthood and she'd pull up her phone, and an app would display an ad for a local PHC with some other options. Um, one of the things that Planned Parenthood immediately started doing was taking all cell phones away and putting them in bins. That's one of the reasons. And um, so what ended up happening was um, in 2017, just a year later, uh, the Massachusetts Attorney General Mara Healey barred the use of location data about people who are near a Massachusetts healthcare facility to send them advertisements based on a medical condition. So immediately and preliminarily before that, that method of marketing was even used in that area, it was banned. And so what we've seen is that there's actually other places like this as well where we have legal issues with using geofencing, geotargeting. And it's true actually that there are other industries that are combating this right now too. It's not just our movement, but it's one of the reasons that we've been a little hesitant, although we are working on that um, as a study as well right now. So we hope to have more information on that uh, for you guys soon, but you have to be careful when you're doing this in a local area. You need to make sure you know your laws, your regulations, and make sure you're on the right side of those. So the last one we want to talk about. So the other beast, Google. So you want to think that, you know, they're going to be unbiased and they're going to let everybody put all their words in there. And if you have the right SEO and if you have the right ranking, you're going to be shown. No. So one of the things we found um, with what happened recently, as you all know, is the new ads policy that came out. Of course, that policy required anybody using um, related keywords to abortion needed to be certified, which meant any of the pregnancy care centers that um, we served at the moment needed to be certified, needed to be certified ASAP. Um, this meant, and this was really hard to explain to some of them, that something is going to be put on your ads whether you like it or not, and it's going to say does not provide abortions. And of course, Planned Parenthood or any other clinics that do will have provides abortion right next to it. Um, one of the good things is when this happened, I mean, we were kind of expecting like a red, bold, flashing light. But I think one of the things that Google was trying to do was, and I'll talk about this in a little bit later, um, was just kind of save themselves. I mean, we're usually companies that make billions of dollars usually are trying to, you know, what's best for them. And they were trying to ease some things that had happened earlier. Um, so actually, they, in a way, I feel like, and Kenny, you can you know, come speak in, they were trying to kind of border the line. So if you've noticed or have seen those, um, those descriptions or disclaimers, they're kind of grayed out, they're kind of towards the bottom, they're kind of smaller. It's not anything that's in your face like we really thought it would be. Um, so kudos to them for that. It was a business call they had to make, but at the same time recognize that they're still trying to play both sides, um, sometimes fairly, sometimes not. Yeah, Google's, Google's stock and trade is information, right? And actually, interestingly enough, the majority of their funding is not coming from people placing Google ads. It's actually from selling everybody's information in this room. And so watching how people click and how they interact throughout the, the, uh, the internet is, is really what they're selling. And one of the things that we found out was that with these little disclaimers, this is actually, in a lot of ways, the best case scenario for us because they seem uh, to be very difficult to spot at first glass, uh, glance, unless you're the type of person that stares at these things all day. I even put one up on a, on a big screen in the, in the office and a couple other places as well, and I was like, okay, find it, where is it? And it took like, you know, eight seconds each time or 10 seconds, which is, you know, stare at something for 10 seconds. It's a little bit longer than you'd think. And it took them a while to figure out, okay, where is this thing? It's right there. It is, it is, a, little, um, it is a little concealed, but at the same time, it's there. Um, but let's talk about where, what we're seeing with it. Okay, well first, I'm gonna talk about what caused it, which I touched on a little bit, and most of you probably know kind of the background, but I think it's important to know like how powerful the other side is. Um, we're always, like Kenny said, we need to know our opponent, and this is how powerful they were able to do. I mean, they were able to take Google, pressure them so much to make this new ad policy that was very specific, specific to a very, um, I don't wanna say niche group, but to a, uh, pretty much just towards all of us. <laughs> um, and so what happened was um, this had been happening for a couple years. They had kind of let it go. They had kind of been um, quiet about it. And then something came out in The Guardian, and um, it kind of released some information about how much money that Google was giving as a grant. Um, as you guys know, Google has Google Grants, able to give it to um, any organization that's nonprofit, that, you know, that um, certified for it. 
that they were giving an excessive amount of money to one pro-life group, and of course, that did not bode well for the others. And they felt those messages were misleading, and the fact that Google was giving money to have those messages misleading, of course, caused the policy to go in effect in mid-June. So, what are we seeing at Vitae? Um, kind of what we call our um, small R research. Well, first, like I said, we had to get these centers certified immediately. This, this all came out in the spring of 2019, and it was implemented in the mid, mid I believe it was mid-June. Um, no warning, it just happened, it was there. Um, and so we quickly experimented with new ads, new landing pages, new ways of doing things, testing things, trying things, and bracing for the impact, because I'm serious, we really thought this was like going to be bright, red, shiny, bold, and there was no way to get past it. But what actually happened, and I apologize, I'm going to read these out, um, was in June, our centers um, overall, so about 50 to 60 centers that we serve, um, had a 6.9 conversion rate. The national average in 2019 is 3.75, so we're very happy about that, but we were ready to see a drop, and we knew that, and we were, we, you know, we communicated with the, with the centers, you know, this is what we think is going to happen, you know, please don't be afraid, please stay with us, let's write it out and see what we can find and figure out together. Um, but what weirdly happened was in July, we averaged 7.6, and in August, we averaged 8.75. <laughs> so... Do I know why yet? No, but <laughs> I'm still working on that. Um, kind of a rule um, I have and, and Kenny and I have adopted with anything doing with Google is we like to give something three months. So actually um, this month's reporting that I do will kind of come full scope, we'll sit down, we'll look at everything and we'll say, okay, you know, why didn't it affect like we thought it would? Did every center see success? No, I would be lying straight to you if I said they did. We saw some centers and areas, um, specifically in New Jersey, that the cost per click was through the roof. I'm talking like $18 per click, which typically we try to, I can't remember the national average, but we try to stay around like $1.20. Um, and by try to stay, I mean that's, that's kind of what we ended up getting. I yes. mean, obviously, we're trying to get as low a cost to click as possible, um, but, but that's what we end up seeing across, again, um, 60 campaigns across the nation. So. Right, and so, um, so we, we did have centers that did struggle, and there were different factors that we think played into that, um, one of them being that, you know, and I'm not sure if it's directly related to the, to the ads policy, but, you know, New Jersey saw a spike in people, you know, competing with them. You could, there's this little tab over to the right side that says Auction Insights, and when I clicked it, I mean, instead of being like four or five other um, websites that were kind of competing with it, it was like 30 long um, and growing. And so that's just one of those things that we have to take, you know, center by center and do the research and provide the results and then try to implement them and then do the research again. And, and so that's one thing that I think is really important um, about Vitae that we do and, and that I've really been glad to be a part of is the research. Um, I think it's very important, again, that you all do it too at the center level. I mean, small R research can be done every single day. So when we talked about those paths to success, take the time to measure those so that next time you can tweak it if you need to, even if it was super successful, take the time to just tweak it a little bit. And then um, always know that our door is open, uh, metaphorically. Um, <laughs> we're just a phone call away. Um, and like you, we're completely nonprofit and we're here to give you that research and help you reach those women that you need in your area. So I think, uh, is the plan for questions or do we want to Okay, it's, yeah, it's totally up to you guys. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, hi, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. <laughs> Thank you. 
as far as the inbound study on the pregnancy center name and the impact, um, that information can be got um, from us, can be received from us. I don't have it with me immediately. Um, but um, for those of you who are uh, PHCs and um, have access to our information console where we have most of our research and strategies, it's accessible through there. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you can go to our website and gain access to it. Um, and then we can also, I can just I'll, I'll email that to you. I know it doesn't help the rest of you, but um, we can get that to you. Um, as far as uh, click-through rate is concerned, I'll go ahead and let Cassara. Yeah. Uh, Actually, Jamie, the click-through rate wasn't as stable. Um, it was kind of dependent on each center. So when I talked about that New Jersey center, the click-through rate was great. It was great, but they weren't seeing any conversions. Um, and so that led us to believe the landing page was the issue, which I know we've worked with you, too, about testing new landing pages and different ways to do that. So um, the click-through rate is one of those things that, unfortunately isn't as um, streamlined. Um, I didn't take an average of it. I have, I mean, I have those numbers and I could get those to you to actually see. Um, again, sorry, <laughs> I have a direct connection. Um, but, but that is something um, that's a really important question to know because like you said, with that um, abortion disc disclaimer, you would think, okay, so most of those women are knowing what they're getting themselves into. And I don't, I don't, sometimes I think that, but then we get some of these leads in and, and some don't, don't read it. Right, right. Right, exactly. How much does it cost? Right, right. Right, it is on there, correct. And, um, and you are right, we also have that disclaimer on all of our landing pages to be completely transparent and again, not try to get anybody into any hot water or act like we're misleading anyone as well. But, um, but that's a good question about the click-through rates. Um, but again, they're just, they were kind of very individualized depending on, you know, okay, how many impressions did you have? And then on top of that, you know, what was happening to um, your conversion rate? Because like I said, new, I keep bringing up New Jersey, but it's just one of those things that I, it's like a puzzle I want to crack. <laughs> and so when, when they had this, um, you know, high click-through rate, yet their conversions were so low, it was just like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Those two things should definitely grow together and not crisscross. So yeah, very, very interesting things. Um, I'll be exciting when I, or excited when I get you all um, the reporting this next month and then be able to take a look at those three months and say, okay, what did we see and what happened? Yeah, absolutely. But we have a, oh, so sorry. We, I have a very loud voice. Um, we have a pregnancy decision line. And it, what you just explained shut us down. Because when people are searching, it says pregnancy decision line. And we have coaches that will stay on the phone. The calls are like 17 to 40 minutes long. But they'll place that, that caller in a local pregnancy center or um, stay on the call to a life decision and a, a gospel offering is done, and those calls can be long, but the, those ads shut us down. I remember we were just all daily praying, Lord, this is your national, you know, website for pregnancy yeah. decisions. So, yeah, we we felt the brunt of that. It was, it was hard. And you're not the only one. And like I said, I mean, you know, we are looking at this through like a lens of 60 centers at once. So yeah, Jamie, if we looked at just your center, you know, the story might be a little bit different. Like I said, with the New Jersey center, I mean, we were, there were some areas and, and we're not here to make things look shiny and pretty when they're not. I mean, there were some centers that this really did affect them, whether it had to do with maybe, you know, the status of where they were at in the country. Maybe it had to do with, you know, the economic status of where it was, you know, we're not quite sure with that yet. That would be something really interesting to do a study on to look at um, to see you know why you know why is st louis of, of all the ones performing so well when they're the only place that there's another abortion clinic so in missouri in missouri right so it's 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 just interesting um, to hear that to to hear those things too because we did we did hear from some centers that you know they had a, they had a 10 per, i think it was about a 10 percent decrease um, in a lot of their leads or a lot of their um their conversion rates too yeah Um, I know that this is very fluid depending on what, uh, what center you're working with, um, but just in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area, could you give me a range for a, an effective campaign for AdWords, like the price um, uh, for an effective campaign? I know that that's going to differ a little bit, but just for our community, what are you seeing as far as that so we know what to budget for? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So most of the centers we work with in your area are going to be around $1,000 or more. That doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be at $1,000 in order to be successful, but what we're hearing from um, some centers is that if they're running campaigns, they might see um, you know, really high cost per click. Hill, um, and we're anywhere right now, um, depending on where you are, uh, Dallas or Fort Worth, anywhere in between there, about um, $1.20 to $1.30 per click right now. That's our average for the keyword abortion and the phrase abortion pill. Yeah, so the, uh, the, the Google auction is, is a complicated beast. Um, there's actually this really cool infographic that I'm not going to be able to put on the display. I have it on my phone, but it's really small. You won't be able to see it. I would definitely encourage you to take a look at how that number is divined by Google. But it has to do with your quality score, which has to do with the content in your ads, but it also has to do with the content on the page that you send people to from your ads. It has to do with what you're willing to pay, but it also has to do with a bunch of other things as well. And, and that's really something that can inform you as to why you're paying what you're paying. And then you can also take a look in the new Google, I say new uh, Google dashboard. I mean, it's, it's about a year old now, but some people um, were only forced recently uh, to adopt it. But there's a whole lot of information for competitive analysis of, of you know, again, competition in the area. So, so who's being seen more than you and where they are. And so I would encourage you to take a look at those factors um, to have an understanding of what is uh, going on with the um, high or, or even low cost per click. Because sometimes a low cost per click, you're like, that doesn't make sense. What's about to happen? Um, so. She said we have one more time for one more question. Mike's coming. Behind you. I, mine is very, very quick. Yeah. I'd just like to hear you talk for a second about defensive ads. I, you know, I'm one of these people, I just can't stand it if you just can't kick them around a little. So the question <laughs> is what are the defense, what is the defensive posture for us? If there are certain things that we're not that are being deregulated because of bias, what are the defensive words? What is the defensive posture we ought to be taking? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So as Casera mentioned, um, you know, the Vitae Foundation has 25 years of right brain research. That's consumer-minded research. It deals with the emotions of a consumer decision. When you buy a car, your chances are not only buying a car because of the gas mileage or the safety rating, you're actually buying the car because of what it's going to tell you, the world about you. What color is it? What type of vehicle is it? Is it gonna keep your family safe? That's a consumer decision. It's not always a logical one. It's the same thing with abortion. So that 25 years of right brain research has given us the tools, and it gives everybody in this room the tools, um, to create a messaging strategy to speak to a woman, to empower her, and to give her hope that there are choices that she has at these PHCs. Um, I would recommend taking a look at a paper that was written probably about 25 years ago now, actually, Abortion, a Failure to Communicate. It was one of the pieces that came out of our first couple, <clears throat> excuse me, couple research studies. Um, it was written by Paul Swope. And um, it was a very informative piece at the time, and it's actually as relevant today as it was then. And it might give you an understanding of how not to take a defensive posture, but to actually take an aggressive posture, but still win. Thank you guys so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I don't know about y'all, but that was pretty interesting. Every time I... I dabbled in a little blog for a while, which I had to put on hold, and he was looking into all those things, and the world has changed so much when, since I had my business many years ago, and it's just mind-boggling. So it's nice to hear something from, um, about the new, new way to do things, and, what, and it changes all the time. So it's, uh, um, thank you guys for speaking. I really appreciate it. So now we have our new speaker, the next speaker, not new speaker, He's not new to this cause at all. From Avail in Midtown Manhattan, please welcome Chris Whitford. Good morning. Um, it is my distinct pleasure to um, share this fellowship with you here this morning. And I've had the chance already to 
speak with you, many of you, and to hear your stories. Um, we love what we do, don't we? We love what we do. We love the people we serve. We love the unborn children whom we are advocating for, and we love the men and women every day who come into our um, care who think abortion is their best or their only option. So I've been asking myself a question recently, and the question is actually, how do I stay the course? How do I stay the course and to pursue this beautiful work with um, focus and energy, um, determination, but also levity and joy? So a little bit about myself. I am a native Bostonian, um, but my folks are from Oklahoma, so I affectionately return to my um, Plain State roots often. I moved to New York City in 1989 to work in campus ministry at Columbia University. In 1992, I married my native New Yorker husband, Tom, and we have raised three children in Manhattan. We helped start Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and um, over the course of those uh, many 30 years that I've lived in New York City, I helped to start a handful of ministries um, as well, including the Midtown Pregnancy Support Center, which is now Avail. In 2017, I returned to Avail as the new CEO. Um, Susanna Taxis wanted to step down to work more closely with her husband, Eric, at Metaxas Media. And um, she now works with me, alongside me, as our founding president. We have a great time together. Um, at the start of Avail, uh, we were simply a group of seven women, seven women who came together to pray to pray about the more than 64,000 abortions every year that occur in New York City, and to imagine a way that we could meet the needs of the educated, professional, working women for whom there was no pregnancy center. So my connection to Avail is an entrepreneurial connection. I love starting things. But it's also, uh, I have a personal connection to this ministry, as I think many of us in this room have. Some of us have mothers who chose to carry us to term and made the very brave choice. Some of us remember what it was like to have a teenage pregnancy scare and to think that our futures could in no way encompass the shame or the detours that that might have, um, that the pregnancy would have created. Some of us know the darkness and the despair of the sadness of having a past abortion experience. Some of us may have paid for a friend to have an abortion or sat powerless in a, in a car as walking, watching her as she walked in. The reality is that the men and women we serve every day are just like us. They're no different than we are. They have hopes and dreams. They have aspirations and fears. They have regrets and sadnesses just like we have. They're real people with real dilemmas and real experiences. And it is our distinct privilege to carry their stories and to intervene in their stories to bring life and light to them. But I also know at times it's a heavy, it's a heavy load that we carry. And it's why I've been asking myself, how do I stay the course? So I'd like to look today at the book of 1 Peter and see the principles that the Apostle Peter gives us in his letter um, to help us stay the course. And the first thing I'd like to say is that he calls us and he calls his readers strangers. Strangers. And he says that in order to persist in our work, we are to embrace the reality that we're strangers. But we're not just strangers, we're actually strangers in a strange land. And in order for us to have unstoppable hope, we need to understand that we are in a strange land. But we're not in a strange land alone. We're in a strange land serving the true king who is with us. And if we follow in the ways of our king, not only will we persist, not only will we have hope, but we will also be effective in what we do. 
So Peter opens his uh, letter to um, his readers, and he says, you are strangers in the world, literally exiles, those who have left the familiar, who have been sent out into the unfamiliar. And he admonishes them to embrace their strangeness, to actually accept their distinction as strangers, but not possibly in the way that we might expect him to say we should be strange. He doesn't call attention to their customs or their manners or how they dress, but he actually says, be strange in how you identify who you are. Focus on the internal realities of your character. Focus on the battle that you have against personal sin in your life and not on the external battles that are outside of yourself about the sin that is out there. So he says things like, harbor no malice. Don't use deceit. Don't live hypocritically. Be gentle. Respect. Be self-controlled. Clear-minded and pray. He says, Embrace your strangeness and be distinct from the people around you by the character that you assume. So how does this impact avail in the work that we do? Well, in the advocacy room, we actually presume that the stranger in the room is not the client. We are the stranger. So we seek to make ourselves understood on the terms of our clients. And we seek to understand them on their terms. What does this do? This creates space. It creates an, an ease of engagement. And we see Jesus model this for us actually in John chapter 4 when he encounters the woman at the well. He's walking through Samaria and he takes a break because he's tired and he's thirsty. And he sees a Samaritan woman approach the well and he says, please, can you give me something to drink? Well, she's an exile, actually. She's not an exile who's left her village, but she is an exile of her village because we come to learn in their conversation that she is a woman of ill repute. She's a moral exile. And because she's a moral exile, she's also a social exile. She's there alone. Who draws water? What woman drew water from the well alone? Only a woman who actually was not welcome into her social um, community. She's a female, not a male, so she is a gender exile. She's an ethnic exile, she's a Samaritan, not a Jew. So Jesus actually has all the power in this moment. He has all the power. But interestingly, he doesn't move into that power. He says to her, I'm thirsty, can you help me? Can you give me something to drink? He goes to the lower place. He identifies with her as a mutual exile, as an exile of heaven. He left his true home, and he took on the nature of a man, and he became a servant. So this is how we approach the women and men who come to us at Avail. We seek to understand the complexities of their circumstances, their background, their, where they come from, um, in order to... Um, Build that bridge. And when that bridge is built, there's ease of engagement. It is not hard to love nor to like the people that, we come, that come to us. We love them and we like them. And when we presume that we are the stranger, they know that too. So how does this enable us to persist? It enables us to persist because the pressure is not on us to change a mind. The opportunity is actually for the client to have his or her mind changed. That's exactly what happened to the woman at the well. She experiences Jesus as a living water. And she leaves and she runs back to her village, the very people who have exiled her. And she says, come and see the man who's told me everything I ever did. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't generally go and champion the list of my sins. But she did. She was free to do that. She had met the Savior. 
So if we're going to persist in this work, let us embrace the reality that we're strangers and let us distinguish ourselves as exiles happily for the good of our neighbors. But we're not just strangers. We're actually strangers in a strange land. Who could possibly forget when the Empire State Building was lit up in pink? It was lit up in pink at the passing of the Reproductive Health Act, which legalized abortion through the ninth month. Who can forget, you all here live in Dallas, that there was a, there was a billboard campaign, right, to catalyze African-American women to consider that abortion was self-care. We've experienced outrage. As strangers in this strange land, we experience outrage. But I'd like to suggest that we're strangers in this strange land and not citizens of it. And so we can add something to our outrage, and that is curiosity. We can pause and we can ask a question. We can say, what human need is this evil law trying to resolve? What is the human need that this evil message is trying to address? And if we add curiosity to our outrage, more needs will be revealed. And we will have a tremendous opportunity. And that opportunity is to actually subvert the evil by meeting the unaddressed need. And so, and so instead of heading against the evil directly, we usurp its power. Now, theologians um, call this um, strange land experience the time between the ages or the now but not yet. Well, what does that mean? It means that the kingdom of God has come when Jesus came and the kingdom of God is now. But it also means that the kingdom of God is not yet. He has not come in his fullness. He has not made everything right. And so actually suffering and sorrow and death and weakness and evil are normative. It's normative. We experience the not yet reality of this strange land every time a woman um, chooses abortion. But we experience the now of this kingdom every time a woman carries to term, or men and women, their relationships are healed, or women experience um, freedom and um, healing from a past abortion. So what does this mean for us as we seek to make abortion unthinkable? It means, I think, that we work victoriously, victoriously, but not triumphalistically. Because God has continued to, to do, and he's going to continue to not do, things for which we have absolutely no good reason, that we see no good reason for. Things like that will still happen. We're going to but, continue to do things and prevent things from happening for which we can imagine we have no good explanation. Both of these things are in our reality. And so I think what we do is we adorn our zeal with wisdom in order to love our neighbors well. You see, God is writing the story um, of our clients. He's writing their story, and we play an incredibly important part in that story. But we're actually not the protagonists of the story, nor are we the authors of that story. So meekness and courage together are the hallmarks of loving our neighbors well. Because we know that God can do more than we can ask or imagine, we're bold. We're bold. But because we know we live in a broken world, we are also meek. So at Avail, we come alongside and we advocate and we serve, knowing that God is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine, and he's able to meet indescribable need. So I'd like to show you a picture of a family. This beautiful family came to us about six months ago 
When they walked into our offices, they sat down and our, one of our male um, advocates met with them and um, Valerie sat there and sobbed. She sobbed for 45 minutes straight. Why did she sob? She sobbed because abortion was unthinkable. She has two children, a six-year-old and a 20-month-old. But she also sobbed because parenting was absolutely unthinkable to her. She didn't know what to do. You know why? Her husband had been the innocent victim of a violent crime a year before and had lost sight in both of his eyes. Completely blind, he had lost his job, they had lost their home, they were living in four different homeless shelters, and their six-year-old son had gone to multiple elementary schools. Here she is pregnant. How, how is she going to care for a blind husband, a six-year-old, a 21-year-old, and a newborn, let alone just get through pregnancy? Well, we walked alongside her, we got them victim services, we helped them with some of their financial need, we helped them with housing, we connected them with safe families so they would have daily family support and they chose to carry to term. And when they came back in the offices for another appointment the next week, our client advocates actually didn't even recognize her. Her countenance had so transformed. God can meet indescribable needs. So when we understand that we're strangers in a strange land, we can actually have hope because we can look at the indescribable and unimaginable needs and not minimize them. We don't need to run away in fear or in denial as if these things weren't true and that they weren't in the way. We can actually look them straight in the face and humbly offer our help and our advocacy and step in to make the difference. We also know that our, this hope holds us fast when our hearts are broken, when women and men choose abortion. But their stories aren't over. And this next slide shows um, flowers from a memorial service that is a part of our Avail Hope program. And each stem represents the life, the life of a lost child to abortion. Women and men um, experience healing through our Avail Hope program, as I know they do in yours as well. One day, not long ago, a woman asked to speak to me, which is a very odd occurrence. And I walked in and our eyes met and hers were full of tears. And she looked at me and she said, you've saved my life. You've saved my life. And she handed me a check because she said, I just have to do something. I just have to do something. Well, she had been a client in our Avail and Power program and had met with our client advocates multiple times, but in the end, chose abortion, and she was devastated. But she'd been loved well. She had been loved well when she came in as a decision-making client, so she had total confidence that she'd be loved well again. And when she left, I turned and I noticed in her hand was a C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Her story was not over. We're not just strangers in a strange land alone. We're strangers in a strange land, but we serve our, the true king. And this true king actually shows us how we're to engage in this strange land. He says, walk in my ways, walk in my ways. But his ways are odd, and they make us look awfully strange, because Peter tells us things like, don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult. Actually consider insults blessings. He says, don't curse, but bless. If you suffer, actually make sure it's not for something that you did wrong. He even has the nerve to say that judgment begins with the household of God. What, is, what do I think that, what, do I, what does that mean? Well, I think that oftentimes it means we're going to find ourselves repenting of our 2% that's wrong in the face of someone else's 98%. But God calls us to repent. Judgment begins with us. Peter encourages us to live and follow the ways of the king. And he says, live such good lives that though the pagans accuse you of doing wrong, they're going to glorify your God in heaven. 
They're going to heap abuse on you, and they're going to think you're strange as well. But in the end, you're actually going to silence the foolish talk of ignorant men. Why do I think following the ways of the true king is so important? I think it's so important because we're right. We're right. We're right abortion ends the lives of unborn children. We are right that it destroys women and men. We are right that it breaks down families. We are right that it is a moral stain on the conscience of our country. We are right. But we're called to be more than right. We're called to do right to have the manner in which we seek right be good and loving and wise and exemplary as well. So the way we serve the true king and the end to which we serve the true king must marry each other. Now what difference does this make for us? I think it makes a really powerful difference in our ability to stay the course. Because confident of the king's authority, the true king we, whom we serve, we are unstoppable. We don't give up. We are strong. We persist. We are persevering in the face of incredible obstacles. But submitted to the king's authority, we are profoundly content and at peace because we say the king does all things well. And this combination of courage and strength, of fortitude, and of internal peace and ease, it is inexplicably attractive. It is otherworldly. And so our clients, feel loved and cared for. And they, because why? They know that we don't have an agenda with them. We are not controlling them to a particular end. We are loving them as people. Now, Jesus does this everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes. And he says, follow me in this way. Let's consider Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is up in a tree. Why is he up in a tree? He's up in a tree because he's short. He's short and he can't see. He can't see over the people that are on the front lines of the parade. He's like, I want to see Jesus. I'm going up in a tree. But he's also up in a tree because he's a tax collector. He's a traitor. He's a thief. And he needs to hide. So Jesus sees Zacchaeus and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to solve your shortness problem by talking to you face-to-face. That's the obvious need. He's short. But what's the unarticulated need? The unarticulated need is that he's ostracized and ashamed. He's a traitor. He's a thief. What does Jesus do? Does he say, oh, great opportunity. All these people, these people that you've stolen from are in front of you. Now please tell everybody what you did wrong. No, he doesn't say that, actually. He says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. We're having lunch. He honors him. He gives him dignity. And in the middle of that lunch, he stands up and he says, oh my gosh, I repent. I'll give back everything I've ever stolen. I'll pay it back four times. And Jesus says, you are a son of Abraham. Consider the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. She's following Jesus. She goes into the crowd. She touches him. She says, if I just touch him, I'm going to be healed. He turns around and says, who touches me? His disciples are like, oh my goodness, Jesus, you got a problem. We are in a crowd and you're going to ask such a dumb question. But he says, no, power has gone out of me. Who touched me? Well, the woman says, trembling, I touched him. Well, why was she trembling? She was trembling because she had been bleeding for 12 years and was unclean. She had been ostracized, made an exile of temple worship, and was not allowed to be brought in to express her worship of the God whom she loved and trusted in. And so he turns to her and he says, daughter, daughter, you're a daughter of Israel. He reinstates her into the community of faith. And he says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. The paralytic. The paralytic doesn't even have enough faith to bring himself to Jesus. His friends do. His friends lower him down through the roof. And Jesus, seeing the faith of his friends, not even his own faith, says to him the most bizarre thing, your sins are forgiven. 
Pharisees are overhearing this. They're like, what the heck? How can Jesus forgive sin? And so Jesus looks at the paralytic and he says, so that you all may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your mat and go home. This man's articulated needs, he's lying on a mat, um, and his unarticulated need of forgiveness were both met. These are the way of the true king that we follow. Months. Um, libelous articles were written about us online. Um, and, but in the end, um, we actually were completely exonerated of all the charges. We knew that was the, tr the case, but to have a victory like that in New York City is no small matter. They actually said we, the summons were issued um, in error which is huge. We weren't even given a slap on the wrist. So uh, many people knew that this was happening because they read articles, um, they were surfing the web, um, but we really didn't, um, we didn't really um, let this event be known to our external stakeholders, nor did we actually champion the victory after this happened, though we were given many requests to give friendly interviews, and I, I contemplated it because I thought, well, this could really be an encouragement to those around us. But in the end, I decided, you know what, I'm, we're not going to do that. Um, I didn't want to appear to be repaying insult for insult or injury to injury. I, uh, we were being caricatured, but I didn't want to respond with the possibility of being seen as caricaturing our um, opponents. I wanted to avoid the us-them dynamic, and I didn't want to further that. So we were quiet about it. Um, nearly two years later, we are enjoying the favor of many organizations across the city um, who do not agree with us on our stance on abortion and with whom we don't agree um, on theirs. But what we do agree with is that we want to be, we want to bring care and services um, to our clients, and many of these organizations meet their needs, and they understand that we meet the needs of their clients. This past summer, two women came to us, referred to us by um, the director of a lesbian, bisexual, um, gay uh, homeless shelter. She had been a client of ours, and she had received such good care that she actually referred on an LGBTQ forum to women to come to us. We work with these organizations because they do exceptional and important work in their lane. Whether that's promoting the maternal health of African American women, whether that is defending um, um, those in the legal system who need um, aid, whether that is opposing and providing resolutions to homelessness, whether that is um, helping women escape domestic violence, uh, whether that is um, um, empowering our clients for business practices. When we serve the true king and when we walk in his ways, we will be effective. Our labor is not in vain. And I know that in this room, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of stories that prove this point. I'll finish with this. Uh, about six months ago, an abortion-minded woman came into our offices um, for help. And she was pregnant with twins. She's in the middle of her budding acting career, and she could not imagine um, a future caring for twins while also trying to live out her dream and the expression of artistic abilities um, as a professional actor. Well, it just so happened that at that time in our offices, a consultant was with us who herself was a professional actor. And the Lord had recently brought her through a healing experience of a past abortion and was enabling her to speak about it. So we asked the client, would you be interested in speaking with a woman um, who is also an actor who's been in the situation that you were in? And she said yes. Because you understand, this actor... She was looking at the decision before her, and this is what she was saying. Someone's dying. Someone's going to die. It's either going to be me or these babies. Someone's dying. But what if the baby nor she had to die? What if flourishing and hope were possible for all of them? The consultant sat with her. And, said, and related to her, affirmed her dreams and desires of being an actor, could, 
could, could affirm the power of an artistic identity and how important that was to her. And she suggested something. She said, what if these children are not an obstacle to your, ex your artistic expression, but what if they're the apex of it? What if they're your magnum opus? And this woman's mind opened. Her mind was changed, not because she was convinced that all the problems that she saw in front of her were resolved, but because the impossibility of this choice of who was going to die was transformed. And the babies and her interests are not opposed to each other, but actually flourish together. I mean, come on, how cute are they? right? We are, so, we are all engaged in this important and vital work, but it's not an easy work. And so I wanted to share these thoughts um, that I had from First Peter because they have been encouraging to me. They've enabled me to stay the course. They've given me hope in the midst of incredible obstacles. They've shaped my understanding and my, and my profound respect and empathy for the men and women whom we serve. And I hope um, that you feel encouraged together, uh, together here with me today. Because really, we what do we want? We want our righteousness to shine like the dawn. And we want the justice of our cause to be as radiant as the noonday sun. And that's why we do what we do. Thank you. That was so powerful. Thank you so much. All of you are on the front lines, and you can relate to so much of this. And God is just an amazing God, and it's amazing what he can do. And so Council for Life stands with you. We're all on the same page. And I would like to pray for everyone here, and then we'll adjourn and have lunch. Please bow your heads. Dear Abba Father, there are no words. You are our all in all. Sometimes we know it, and sometimes we stray. But you've made us and chosen us, knowing all that ahead of time. We thank you so much, Lord God for your love, for Jesus, and for all of the people who minister to us in so many ways, from the past, in the Bible, from the present, and from um, what you've planted in our own hearts. So we ask your blessing upon this gathering, upon this group, but upon everyone no matter where they are in the world, who stand for life. And so may we have a wonderful time of fellowship. Thank you, Lord God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.